We are uh, beginning a brand new series today, and uh, this series will be centering around the events of Holy Week. And um, the title that you see there, uh, that kind of goes right along with uh, what is starting here just at the end of this week, March Madness. And I know for a lot of you, that means absolutely nothing. Um, You know, you might find uh, every month to be a little mad. But uh, March Madness is uh, the NCAA basketball tournament, and uh, it is definitely madness. It's where uh, everybody just goes crazy, and uh, you probably some of you are all into that, have already started getting your bra- uh, brackets ready, right, to fill in and compete with other people, and uh, we'll see what happens with Selection Day today. Uh, but March Madness, uh, it's, it's always a fun time. Um, it's a packed schedule of games all the time. I mean, every day, all day long. Uh, There's just this frenzied pace to it all, edge of your seat action, and it all builds and rises toward the crescendo of the final four. And the goal of that is the the final four teams out of all the the other teams that battle it out for um, a national title. And uh, it's just, it's full of energy and you never know what's going to happen from one game to the next, and it's all a very exciting time. Uh, we're not going to be talking about that kind of Final Four, obviously, in this series. Uh, what we're going to be talking about is the Final Four, the last four events, the major events of Christ's Holy Week. The last four events of that Holy Week. Um, there's a lot that happened during the, the Holy Week. As soon as he entered Jerusalem in his triumphant entry, that started the clock ticking. And from that point down and that point onward, um, time and everything was racing towards the culmination of all that Christ came to be and to do. And so we're going to zero in on the last four specific and and very major events uh, of his final time on earth in his life and his ministry. And as we start off today, we're going to be looking at the Last Supper, the Last Supper is the first of the four final major events of his Holy Week or his Passion Week. So, the Last Supper. And uh, I invite you to look with me at uh, Luke 22, verses 14 through 20. That's where we're going to to start off. That's kind of going to be our our foundational text uh, as we start off today in this series. Luke 22, 14 through 20. And in verse 14, God's Word says this, When the hour came... He, speaking of Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Uh, Isn't it great that Jesus desires to do anything at all with us? I mean, did did you catch that? I fervently desired to eat this Passover with you. Jesus desired to be with his disciples. He, he was looking forward to sharing this time with them. And um, I just want to tell you, church, the same is true for, for you and me. Uh, Jesus, our Savior, actually desires to be with us. What a thought. What a thought that is. So he said, I fervently desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, which was certainly about to happen, literally in a matter of hours. Then verse 16, for I tell you, I will not eat it, this feast, this Passover, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
And what he's referencing there is at the end of all time when everything as we know it is done away with and eternity is ushered in at what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what he's referring to. The great feast. I mean, the feast of all feasts will take place in eternity when all wickedness is gone, when all evil, when all sin is done away with, when there's no more enemy that keeps coming at us and tempting us and accusing us, man, what a day that will be, right? And that's what he's referencing. You can uh, look that up um, at some point in, in, uh, maybe in your own study. Revelation 19 talks about that. Uh, that will get you excited. I mean, if you're having a, a down day, a bad day, look at Revelation 19. Look at what's in store for you, believer. That'll get you going. And if it doesn't, there's something wrong. But that's what he's referencing, um, that this is going to be the last Passover, the last feast of this nature that he celebrates until that time. Verse 17, then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And that's the same reference, same, same thing he's looking toward. Verse 19, and he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This would have been something absolutely startling to the disciples uh, and just new for the head of the Passover feast to say because all the Passovers looked back on the exodus from Egypt for Israel. That's what the Passover celebrated. The Passover celebrated the time when after Pharaoh refused to let Israel go. Finally, the last plague, the worst of them all, was that every firstborn in Egypt was struck dead. And that happened to Pharaoh's family. And it happened all through Egypt. And so finally, Pharaoh said, that's it. I've had it. Fine. Go. Leave. Get out of here. Do it. But before that happened, the destroyer, a divine destroyer, came through all of the land of Egypt and struck every firstborn, everyone, except for the nation of Israel that had uh, blood wiped on the top of the doorpost of their house, the doorpost and the sides. And that was something that set them apart. We're going to look at that in just a minute. Uh, But that is what was celebrated. And so every Passover from that point on, all through Israel's history, looked back to that event. It wasn't a remembrance of any one individual. It was a remembrance of God's general deliverance of Israel, of the fact that He worked miraculously on their behalf to let them go and to spare them from the destruction that was unleashed on Egypt. And so there were certain elements that were specific and that were zeroed in on, but it it was never the person leading the feast ever standing up and saying, I want you to focus on me. I want you to remember what I'm about to do. Uh, This is my body. This is my blood. That was never said. It was never said. The focus was all on the event, the historical event. So this would have really, really stood out to them. Verse 20, In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. There were usually four different cups of wine at the Passover 
feast. And the same way he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so this last supper was also the first Lord's Supper. This was what he was instituting here. He completely, he took the the familiar and the routine and he completely made it something else right here with the disciples. So that's the account of the Last Supper. And why, why did Jesus zero in so much on on this particular gathering, this particular celebration, why did he say, I fervently desire to eat this Passover with you? Um, I want to suggest to you that Jesus was so passionate, so looking forward to this Passover with his disciples, because this one came right before the events that would permanently provide what all the previous Passovers were only pictures of. All those, those Passovers that came before this one, centuries worth of Passovers. I mean, this was something that Israel was to commemorate every single year. This was one of their biggest national holidays and one of their biggest national uh, memorials. So every Jew in every age grew up celebrating Passover, knowing how important it was knowing how significant it was to their identity. But all of those Passovers, as as important as they were, they were merely symbols, pictures, arrows, pointing toward the one final Passover, the one fulfillment of it all that was going to be met in Jesus and Jesus alone. All these Passovers were, were pictures. It was like um, when, when you have uh, looked at the pictures of the house that you're buying before you're actually living in it. You know, you, you look at houses, you pick out one that you really like, you go and you see it, you go through all the process, and you start that, and you're buying it, and you've, you've made the offer, you know, it's accepted, and now it's just about the paperwork and all the red tape, and boys, there are a lot of that, Right? But in the meantime, you know, you're excited about it. And so from time to time, you're looking at pictures of it. You're thinking about what it's going to be like once you're actually in it. You're picking out where you're going to put this thing and how you're going to decorate it. You're getting it all in your head, but you're not actually in it yet, right? That's really how the Passovers functioned. It reminded Israel of God's faithfulness and His goodness to them, His love of them, His provision for them. And, and it was rich and full of wonderful, beautiful imagery in itself. But it wasn't the reality that was to come. It wasn't the reality to come. So let's look at the event itself that all these Passovers reminded Israel of and of what it pictured. Exodus 12, 12-13 uh, actually is the record of the event itself. And so God is speaking here. Uh, to Moses and to the children of Israel, and he says this, I, God personally, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I will execute judgments against all the little g gods of Egypt. 
the blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Isn't that beautiful? It it reminds me of what David said about the shadow of death in Psalm 23. You know, Psalm 23, he says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, though death is around me, I will fear no evil. Why did David say that? Why could he be confident even in the, the face of death? Because he said, for you are with me. And I, I see that here. Um, I, I, I like to visualize things you know, in my mind when I'm reading through Scripture. And, and I try to imagine in my mind what it would have been like for, for the Jewish people huddled together in their house, knowing death was all around them, hearing the screams the screams of anguish, the screams of, of agony all around them as household after household, family after family saw their firstborn struck dead instantly. And all through Egypt, the cry of, of anguish and despair. And even though they knew what God told them, I mean, they were human, and we know Israel's track record. We know our track record. We know that we are so prone to doubting and, and just think about if it were you in that house as the divine destroyer, which likely was Jesus himself, by the way, the second person of the Trinity, the angel of the Lord, as this divine destroyer was coming through the land all around you, striking house after house. I mean, wouldn't you be tempted to think, is this really going to be something I avoid? Is the blood on my doorpost going to be enough? Will he really pass over me? Or is it going to affect me too? And maybe, who knows, maybe they even underneath the door, at that little sliver of, of light that's let in underneath your door, maybe they even saw the shadow of the destroyer passing by them. I don't know. Maybe. But through it all, God's promise held. God's promise was fulfilled. He saw the blood on the doorpost of the house where his people were dwelling, and that blood was that sign of safety. And he passed over them. He passed over them. What, what an event, but what an image. What a picture of what was to come. What a picture of what Jesus was here to fulfill. So of course he was so passionate and so fervently desiring of this Passover because in a matter of hours, he was going to fulfill everything that 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 Passover pictured and pointed to. Israel's physical slavery, as bad as it was, was a picture of spiritual slavery that was infinitely worse. Their bondage in, in Egypt, it was horrible, and it was just long-lasting, and it seemed like maybe there was no end in sight, and they cried out to God for deliverance, and they needed deliverance. But all of that slavery they were under with Egypt, it was, it was an image of a greater slavery, a more problematic prison, spiritual slavery. And what was true of them is true of us. 
And it's that sin, sin has always been humanity's greatest threat. Sin has always been humanity's greatest threat. Worse than every plague or pandemic, worse than every economic downturn, Worse than every world war. Sin is the worst symptom of what it means to be human. It's the worst sickness that we have. Worst sickness that we can, we can um, be faced with. And it plagues every single human being in every age. No one is exempt from it. We're born into it. We embrace it. And we have to answer for it. Sin has always been humanity's greatest threat. And it was true for Israel just like it's true for us. And we, we need divine deliverance just like Israel did. No matter what they wanted to see happen, no matter what they might have tried, they couldn't deliver themselves from the hand and the grip of Pharaoh. They needed something beyond themselves. They needed someone sent to them. They needed a divine deliverance. And that's what we need too. We need that as well. We need rescue and deliverance beyond ourselves. And as amazing as Israel's deliverance was, and it was amazing, I mean, what God did was spectacular. As amazing as that was, it was an even greater picture of an even greater rescue that God promised to provide. A promise that was uniquely and completely fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. John 5.24 tells us this, and, and I want you to, to keep the, the Passover itself in mind, the destroyer coming through Egypt, passing over the house where the blood was put on the doorpost. Keep all of that in mind, and keep in mind that Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise that was, that was promised to Israel, the promise of, of an even greater rescue than what they witnessed there that day. John 5.24 says this, and this is Jesus speaking, Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has, has already, has in their possession actively, has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Hallelujah! You could even say has passed over from death into life. Anyone who hears my word, Jesus said, the gospel, the good news of salvation that he alone proclaimed and provided. Anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Church, remember this, believe this, live this, proclaim this, this truth, this reality, that only Jesus can rescue us from the power and penalty of sin. Only Jesus. Only Jesus can do that. No other person can do that for you, no matter how great they might be. No vaccine is going to be able to cure you of the sin sickness that you and I have. No stimulus is going to take care of that kind of a need. No big legislative agenda can do what is needed. Only Jesus can rescue us from the power and the penalty of sin. And that's what he provided. That's what he came to bring. Have you been rescued? 
today by the only Savior there is? Do you know rescue? Are you living that out? Are you able to celebrate that rescue from the power and penalty of sin? I want you to know, too, that it wasn't just being saved from sin that Jesus provided and gave. His rescue wasn't just saving from sin. His rescue was saving from sin and for something else. We were rescued for relationship. We were rescued for relationship. Rescued from sin for a relationship with God, an eternal relationship. That's, that's really what the covenant between God and man has always been about. The covenant that he established with Israel, it was all about relationship. The covenant even before that, that he began with Adam and Eve before they fell, was all about relationship. The covenant with Noah was all about relationship. The covenant with Abraham before Moses and the children of Israel, all about relationship. God's covenant with man has always been about relationship with him. And so Jesus didn't just fulfill the Passover. I mean, he did that. I hope you've seen that sufficiently already. He fulfilled the Passover as the destroyer came through Egypt, representing the the eternal death that awaits every single person that does not come to Christ. But yet he spared those who, who had the blood over them and they were under the blood as a picture of what it means for everyone who comes to Christ being under his blood, saved from death, saved from the penalty of sin. He, he did fulfill the Passover, absolutely. But he didn't just fulfill the Passover. He also fulfilled the promise of the new covenant. We read, we read that as we began this morning, just in, in that first uh, passage of Luke, where he says at the very end of, of the, the giving of the bread and giving of the wine, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus also fulfills the promise of the new covenant. And when he did that, it made the former one complete and obsolete. The former covenant, which had been inaugurated with Israel in the wilderness by Moses, that had lasted for centuries up to this point. The old covenant of ritual and ceremony. The old covenant of law. Law was over the old covenant. And when Jesus came and He fulfilled the new covenant, He made that old covenant and its old obligations and its attachment to the law and the weight of the law on it and everyone that was under it, He made it complete and obsolete. Church, introducing the new covenant was central to Christ's coming. And we don't often think of it that way. We know Jesus came and He was born as a baby. We know He came so that He could go to the cross to free us from our sin, to offer eternal life, and we know all that. But we, we sometimes, maybe often, miss the fact that inaugurating and introducing and confirming the new covenant, that was absolutely central to Christ's coming. 
so that we wouldn't have to be under the old covenant and under the law with it. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33, communicate that promise that was to come, the promise of a new covenant, unlike the old in every way. Here's what God says in this passage, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. And this is from the NLT. I love, I love the way the NLT translates this, this passage. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. Side note, every marriage is a covenant. Every marriage is a covenant. And every Christian marriage is absolutely supposed to picture and represent and point to that eternal love covenant between God and us through Jesus Christ. Very important to remember that. That's why marriage is so sacred. So he says, they broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts, I will be their God and they will be my people. In other words, redemption and relationship through Emmanuel. It's who Jesus is. It's not just a title for Christmas. Jesus is always Emmanuel, God with us. And redemption and relationship came through him and is always through him. So a new covenant that was promised a new covenant that was going to come and to be given and to be offered. And it it did. It came. Jesus brought it. Jesus fulfilled it. Jesus kept that promise. Here's what Hebrews 9, 13 through 15 tell us, also from the NLT. Under the old system or the old covenant or the law, under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies the physical, from ceremonial impurity. Verse 14 says this, But just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal Spirit, Christ offered Himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why He is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under that first covenant. That's what Jesus came to do. He didn't just save us from sin. He saved us from sin for something else. For a relationship with Him, with His Father, 
not by any merit we have, not because we're just that good, not because God just had to get us on his side. No, all by grace, all because of his righteousness. So what we have is the old covenant confirmed with the imperfect blood of bulls. And when it was first inaugurated in Exodus 24, that's what happened. Um, God gave uh, Moses uh, the instructions for Israel. He said, here's what I, I want. Here's, here's what the uh, stipulations of the covenant are going to be. Our covenant relationship is we enter into this together. Here's what I expect of you. And Moses read that to the people and they said, amen, we're going to do it. We'll do everything that, that God has said that he expects us to do. And Moses said, okay, I'm going to confirm this covenant on, on our behalf with God. I'm going to be the mediator and, and it's going to be confirmed with blood. So he took the blood of bulls that, were, that was sacrificed and he sprinkled it on the people, which was the confirmation of that covenant. But it was imperfect. It was imperfect blood. Imperfect bulls with imperfect people. And it was temporary. It lasted for centuries, but this old covenant was never meant to be permanent. It was temporary. Contrast that with the new covenant, which Jesus inaugurated. Think back to what we read at the beginning. Luke, there in his account of the Last Supper, Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. This new covenant was confirmed with the perfect blood of the Son of God. There as he, as he gave that cup to the disciples and said something they had never heard before, This is the new covenant. What? New covenant? This is the new covenant, not by the blood of an animal, in my blood. And and their their minds would have just been spinning. What? What What, what is happening here? The old covenant is being done away with? And it's not going to be ratified by, by the blood of an animal like it has been every single time before, like it was always done? Your blood's going to seal this new covenant? And in just, just a little tiny bit of time, that's exactly what was going to happen as Jesus went to the cross. So this new covenant was confirmed with the perfect blood of the Son of God, and it was eternal. The new covenant. It's not temporary. It's eternal. Eternal. Everlasting. Both covenants confirm with blood, ratified by blood. But the blood of Jesus speaks much better things, contains much better promises. And that's what Jesus came to provide. So, bringing this all together, the Last Supper led to the last sacrifice, which resulted in a new relationship and a new reality. No longer under the law. No longer under the obligation and the weight of the law. No longer unable to hold up under the weight of the law. No longer only able to come to God one time a year, and that through someone else. Access, availability, permanence. And, and here's the best part of it all, not limited to the Jewish nation. Not limited to Israel. This new covenant 
unlike the old, was something completely open and available to everyone. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Here's where we're going to wrap up. Because this is just so important to get and to understand. This is the hope and the reality that you and I have. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised. In other words, all you non-Jews, you were looked down on and viewed as second rate by all who were Jews, all who were of the house of Israel. You were, you were called the uncircumcised and unfit by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. That was true of every single person up to Christ. And that's true of every single person today outside of Christ. But look at what it says next. Oh, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hallelujah! That's what makes the gospel such good news, church. You're not on the outside looking in any longer. You're you're part of the great, new, and eternal covenant of God with man through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one can take that from you if you're in Christ. You're under the blood forever. And not only are you spared from, from eternal death and judgment, you are, because therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1, but you're also part of a personal and eternal relationship with the living God. All because of Christ. It's what makes the gospel such good news. And that's what we're going to remember and to celebrate together now in, in just a minute um, by participating in what we've been considering today. Jesus inaugurated the new covenant. He initiated the the first of the Lord's Supper at the Last Supper, and we've been celebrating it ever since, and we're going to do that today. We're going to remember what Jesus did for us and what he made true of us. We're going to celebrate that right now. I'm going to pray, and uh, as I pray, guys, go ahead and come on down if you would and be ready to uh, to serve the congregation as we participate together in the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for what you have done. Thank you for what you've done in your Son and through your Son and only in and through Him. Apart from Him, we truly would be without hope. Apart from Him, we would have no ability to come to you, to know your love, We would have no ability to have a relationship with you. We would have no ability to deliver and save ourselves. And through your Son, you made all that possible. Through your Son, you initiated and inaugurated a new covenant. Not based on the law. Not based on constant sacrifice. One that was going to be confirmed with blood, but with perfect blood 
and would end all the other sacrifices. One final sacrifice, and then there would be no longer needed. Thank you for giving us what you did in and through your Son, for making true of us what you did in and through your Son. Thank you for our new reality. We celebrate that. We give you thanks. We remember now what our Savior did for us and made true of us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.